I invite you now to turn with me to the first chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up our reading in verse 19, actually the, the middle of verse 18. Before we read that, I'll, I'll mention that we do have, um, on the inside of our aisles, we have fellowship paths that we'd ask you to pass down the aisles and fill, fill those out. If you're a visitor to St. Andrews, we'd love to get you some information about the, the church, and you signing that pad will help us to do that. Philippians chapter 1, then, in verse 19, let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is God's holy word. Let's go before him now in prayer, asking for his help. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning, and it's our prayer now that you would give to your people a humble confidence. We ask that you would humble us before your word, knowing that it is You who speak, that these are not simply the words of a man, but these are your words. And you are our maker, but you are also our redeemer. And so we pray that you would would humble us to hear your voice this morning. But we also ask that you would give to your people a great confidence this morning as we hear your word. Father, when we open up your word on the very first page, we see that when you speak, you call things that were not into existence. We read throughout your word that when you speak, you call the dead to life. Father, we pray that you would give us this confidence this morning that your word does not go out from your mouth and return to you empty or void, but it accomplishes the purposes for which you set it forth. And so we pray this morning that you would give us this humble confidence. As we hear you speak, we pray that you would lift our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be confident this morning that through the hearing and the preaching of your word, you are able to change hearts. You are able even to call the dead to life. And we pray that you would do it this morning for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I once heard someone explain to me how uh, how skyscrapers were built, and I don't really know. I'm taking their complete word for it. I, I don't know anything about that sort of thing. But this, this person explaining this came from a family who was involved in the, 
the steel business, and uh, and they would use these these gigantic steel beams to help put up these these skyscrapers. And and he would tell me, you know, that the before anything really happened, before the first nail was put in place, before any of the walls were lifted into their places, before any of the floors were built or any of that kind of stuff, you you had to begin with the foundation. And I think that's pretty obvious. Without being an architect, I knew that. Um, but he said you have to begin with the foundation. He says the thing with these skyscrapers, though, is if you are involved in the very beginning process of that, you could go visit the site where they're building the, the skyscraper, and you would look down into a hole where they are building the foundation. And sometimes it is many, many stories deep. Sometimes that foundation is sunk into the earth almost as tall as the skyscraper will be above ground. And um, j- just amazing as he described how deep these holes would be. And, I, you know, I don't think you need to understand any architecture to follow this illustration this morning, but this at least explains to me in my simple mind why skyscrapers don't just topple over, you know, during a, a windstorm or, or, or some other kind of storm, why they, they don't sway uh, back and forth and eventually crumble and fall over. It's because that foundation is sunk so deeply into the ground. It's because of the security of that foundation. I think all that's fairly obvious. You know, if you were happened to be here last week, we were read, we've been going through the Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we saw last week uh, that he was you know, Paul is saying that he is continuing to rejoice, but Paul is in prison. He's been thrown into jail because of his proclaiming the gospel. And I at least need to be honest with you this morning. Paul, in this light, seems to be a very strange kind of person. I mean, how do you say that you're going to continue rejoicing when you've just been thrown in jail, uh, when you have a Roman guard chained to you 24 hours a day. That seems very difficult. In some ways, Paul seems to be unreal to us in this sense. You know, he can't stop rejoicing. But I think what we're going to find this morning is that Paul is saying in our, in our passage this morning is that if you want to understand how it is that he continues to rejoice, you need to stop looking at what's happening above ground and you need to see his foundation. The foundation for him provides the security and this reason for his rejoicing no matter what is going on around him, no matter what the circumstances might be. And we know that some of us in this very room are facing some very difficult things in our lives right now. Um, You know, there are difficulties to be faced with the raising of children. There are difficulties to be faced in in marriages and in our families, difficulties in jobs, in the workplace, um, even difficulties with yourself. And, and we know what that feels like to go through those circumstances, to feel like almost that you're standing on the outside of your own life and watching it crumble and fall apart. And it's hard and it's difficult and it involves much suffering. But I think there's an opposite side to that spectrum as well. There are probably those among us this morning that are thinking right now, I don't have any idea what he's talking about. You know, my life is going pretty well right now, and things seem to be in place, and there's right now I'm not experiencing this this chaos and everything. It's it's sunny days for me right now. We watch a lot of Sesame Street. It's sunny days. Um, but my question, no matter where 
you are this morning is this. Is even your happiness, is it deep? I mean, is it, is it beyond what you are experiencing through your, your circumstances? Because real joy, the kind that Paul is talking about in this passage, isn't based on anything that's happening above ground. Real joy in this life, Paul is saying, has to do with the foundation. And so what I want us to see in this passage are these three things that Paul points to in this passage as explaining his foundation for joy, and they are these. He's saying you can continue to rejoice because of what you know, what you expect, and because of what defines you. And so let's start with what you know as a foundation for joy. Here's what we see in verse 19. Joy is based on what you know, and it's independent of your circumstances. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, now listen, when we first read this verse, it sounds like Paul is saying, I know that I'm about to get out of jail. I know that the guard is about to come in here with the key. They're about to unlock me, and I'm getting out. But that isn't really what Paul is saying in this verse. In the translation that I use, last word in the verse is translated deliverance. But it's actually the word that should be translated salvation. You see, and when you read that verse with the word salvation, you realize that he isn't saying that he's about to get out of jail. He's saying something entirely different than that. And I I want you to give me about a minute to make a case for this. You know, the Bible uses the word for salvation in several different ways. Sometimes the Bible uses the word salvation to talk about the past. You know, to talk about the fact that we were saved from our sins when we rested and trusted in the person and work of Jesus. And sometimes the Bible uses the word salvation to talk about the future. It's out there in the distance. One day, the Bible would say, we will be saved. And it's talking about it in this sense, that there is a coming day when we will be brought home to be with Jesus and salvation will be complete in fullness. But yet there's another way that the Bible uses the word salvation. And sometimes it uses the word salvation to talk about your present to talk about your growth in the Christian life, that you are being saved, that you are in the process of being saved. This is, in fact, the way the ver- this same exact word is used in chapter 2, verse 12, just a few verses later. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's salvation in the sense of growing in the Christian life. And I would suggest to you this morning that this is really what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have every reason to keep on rejoicing Because I know that through your prayers in the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me is really for my growth. See, he's saying God is using this, these circumstances in my life, to change me, to transform me, to make me into something different. Paul is saying God is using this to make me more like the man I want to be, more like the man God has called me to be. And I would suggest to you this morning that This is the reason even your pain can be turned into delight. Because God is even using that to make you more like Jesus. Stripping away from you the lust and the greed that is in your life. Bringing to life things like patience and kindness. Making us more loving. Making us more self-centered. All through struggle. All through trials. You know, most of us are so busy 
trying to avoid pain and run from hurt. And I think really to, to, to just escape the hardness of life. Because you know that life is hard. It's a broken world that we live in. And most of us spend so much time running from those things and trying to escape those things that we fail to see what God is doing in it. I mean, what would it be like to live with the kind of confidence that Paul has here? That even in and during the hardest times of your life, you are met with the goodness of God in Jesus. I mean, what would it be like to live with this kind of assurance when everything around you seems like chaos, when it feels like your world is crumbling beneath your feet, to know with certainty that God is using it all to make you more like his son. Paul would say, I think, that it looks like rejoicing when you see that, when you know that. You know, during the Middle Ages, some people were looking for a way to take lead and turn it into gold, and they called this process alchemy or alchemy. I don't even know how you pronounce it. I just read it in a book. But, uh, you know, here they are. They, they see this lead as this useful substance or useless substance uh, to be thrown away and discarded. What good is it? Um, apparently they didn't have pencils back then. But, you know, they saw this useless substance, and so they were seeking for a way to to turn it into something useful. They wanted to turn it into gold, in fact. That, that was their goal. Now, I guess it's a good idea, but, of course, you cannot do that. It, it doesn't work. But I want to suggest to you this morning that Paul is saying this. God can do that. And God is always doing that. Always taking lead and turning it into gold. See, I, I think Paul is saying, I rejoice... Because Paul is turning me from lead into gold. It's divine alchemy, or however you say that word. And often what God does is he uses the fire of trials in our lives to bring that about. You know, one of the bigger questions that we ask as God's people is often just simply why. You know, why is this going on in my life? Why is God allowing this to happen? I mean, those are huge questions. And the answer is found in what we know, that God is using even the hardness of life to turn his people into something beautiful, shaping us and molding us to be more like Jesus. And it's cause for joy. Well, the second foundation for joy is found in what you expect. Verse 20, Paul writes this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, when we read these words, I eagerly expect and hope, we are seeing in the Bible extreme confidence. I mean, the Bible uses these words, eagerly expect and hope, very differently from the way you and I use them every day. I mean, we say things like, I hope I get a raise, you know. Uh, I hope my child doesn't throw a fit in Walmart again. Um, I, I, you know, you're in, in school and you're thinking, I hope that I pass biology. It's far from certain. It's more like wishful thinking. But the way the Bible uses it is completely different. When Paul picks up these words, he's saying, I am absolutely positive. There is no question in my mind. 
We can be absolutely positive, absolutely certain that whether by life or by death, Jesus will glorify himself in his people. You know, really the heart of verse 20, you see this because the focus really isn't on Paul at all. And the focus isn't on you and me. The reason there's absolute confidence and absolute certainty here in what we expect is because the focus is on Jesus. The reason there will be no shame, the reason there will be sufficient courage, as Paul writes, is because Jesus is glorifying himself in us. You know, a constant temptation that you and I face in the Christian life even is that we want the glory. You know, we long for the spotlight. And we want to be noticed for our achievements. And we want the attention to be upon us. And we start to feel like maybe we deserve some attention because look how far we've come. Look at what we used to be and what we are now. And you even find yourself tempted at times to take credit for the work that God has done in your life. You know, I almost cringe when I I go somewhere and I hear that someone is going to get up and give their testimony to becoming a Christian. And those things can be wonderful things. I'm, I'm not trying to knock that process. But by and large, most of the times that I've heard testimonies, it has more to do with, look how bad I was and now look how good I am. And it doesn't have very much to do with Jesus. You know, we tend to crave that spotlight. But here Paul is saying, I fade away into the background. I disappear because whatever happens to me, it is Jesus who brings glory to himself through me. And that is why I rejoice. You see, Paul sees himself very differently, I would suggest. He sees himself very differently than the way you and I tend to see ourselves because he sees that this grand story of redemption, it isn't ultimately about him. It is ultimately about Jesus. This grand story of redemption is about Jesus' glory. You see, the gospel invites you into something bigger than yourself. Your life and my life isn't a testimony to our faithfulness. It is a testimony to God's faithfulness to his people in Jesus. That he would lift us from the dust and display us display us as his trophies of grace. You know, the best illustration of this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read you just three short verses here. These will be familiar to you probably. He writes this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, For it is God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then listen to this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, this is what I mean when I say that Paul sees himself differently than the way we tend to see ourselves. He calls himself an ordinary jar of clay, not a vase with beautiful, intricate designs and, and markings, but a jar of clay. And the only thing that makes that jar of clay worth anything is the treasure that it holds. And that treasure, Paul says, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes the glory of that gospel shine all the brighter by placing it in jars of clay. You see, if you want to know how to continue rejoicing no matter what, I'm saying this to you, you have to start looking in the mirror and seeing a jar of clay. 
and not a beautiful vase. You see, I wonder if you've ever thought things like this, because I've thought these things. Why didn't Jesus just take away all of my sin when I became a Christian? I mean, certainly he could have done something like that, right? He is God after all. I mean, why didn't he just take away all of our broken tendencies and our rebellious motivations? Don't you ask yourself, why do I keep failing at the same old things time and time again? Why doesn't being a Christian make my marriage easy? Why doesn't being Christian, being a Christian make my kids behave in Walmart after all? You know, why, why is it that the Christian life seems to be defined by such intense and ongoing struggle? Well, I'll tell you one reason. And that one reason is that you will never be able to forget that you are a jar of clay. And that's all you are. So that you and I will grow to expect that God shows his power, not in our strength, but in our weakness. And that he displays his glory in all of our deformities. Well, finally, come to this third point. Foundations for joy are found in what we know, what we expect. But there's also this third foundation, which I'm, I'm calling what defines us. And I think it's here that we find our ultimate foundation because we know, because what we know and what we expect really grow out of this third point, what defines us. I don't want you to take this the wrong way and, and think that I'm just some really morbid person because I know this is going to sound horrible up front. But let me just say it. Um, Every once in a while, I catch myself thinking. I'm driving down the road or, you know, just kind of on my own thinking. And I'll think, you know, what would I do if my wife, Jennifer, died? I know that sounds terrible. You know, what would I be like? How would I respond to that circumstance? And for me, that's an important question. Because I look at my life and I see, I see that I'm often tempted to define my life by my wife. You know that, what if she was taken from me? Would it destroy me? I, I guess that's the question. And my question for you to think about is, is simply this. What's your bottom line? I mean, what is it? In your life, that makes life worth living at all. You know, what is it that really defines you? I mean, because it could be so many things, right? I mean, is it your job or your career? I mean, the one thing that matters to you is whether or not you will be a success and have these great achievements. I mean, is it your friends? You know, as, as long as you have friends and as long as everybody in your life likes you and is happy with you, you're great. As long as you're in the right social scene and can be found in the right places with the right people. I mean, is it your marriage or your family? I mean, as long as you have the picture-perfect family, you know, you're happy. Pleasure or status or recognition, all kinds of things. Or maybe it's simply things that we've just kind of turned into Christian things. And we've said, you know, the thing that defines me is having good morals. You know, as long as I can be as conservative and as moral as I can possibly be, then I'm satisfied. 
then I know who I am. And here's what I want you to see this morning, that those aren't small questions. Those questions are huge because at the bottom of all those questions is this question. What is life? Here's how Paul defines his life in verse 21. This familiar verse. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see what he's saying? He's saying, they took my career from me, but my career isn't my life. They took my friends from me, but my friends are not my life. Pleasure and moral and race and achievements aren't what define me. Jesus is everything to him. See, you can take away his career and throw him in prison. You can beat him and you can put him in shackles. And he says, you can take it all away from me. And you haven't touched my life. My life is defined by something that no one can take from me. And no one can touch. See, and this is why he can say, even death is to my advantage. To die is gain. You begin to get this picture of Paul in your mind. That he holds on to the things of this life with such a loose grip. Because all of his strength is spent on holding on to the Lord Jesus. This is how Paul puts it in chapter 3. He says this, What's more, I consider everything, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he says, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What is your bottom line? What is it that defines you according to the Bible? There is only one definition that works. There is only one bottom line, and that is the Lord Jesus. I'm going to close um, changing gears slightly and telling you about my dog. Um, I have a, uh, we have a chocolate lab, and she is, she's nine years old. She's, you know, Labrador Retriever, and dogs are, you know, are very, very simple animals, and mine is especially simple. Um, it is, um, I mean, she's a retriever. It's in her blood to retrieve. You throw something for her, she's going to chase it down and bring it back to you. And it does not matter what it is. It, she will chase the stick. She will chase the ball. She will chase it all day long. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss rhyme or something. But she especially loves to chase and retrieve in water. You know that that's what they're bred for. And some of you know this about labs that you can literally kill some labs by playing fetch. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. It's so in their blood that you can throw the ball so many times that they will simply wear themselves out and die of exhaustion. You can throw the stick in the water so much that she will keep going after it again and again until she drowns. And so you've got to be conscious of that when you're playing fetch with the dog. But, you know... The way I would define my dog when it comes to playing something like fetch is, you know, she is consumed with this passion. I, I mean, she's driven, she's focused. To retrieve defines her. And I would say to you this morning that that is what it looks, to, looks like to be defined by something. Everything else in life is just secondary. Even life itself, there is one thing in focus. What Paul says is that Jesus defines him. 
And so he is consumed with passion. He is driven and he is focused on Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen to me. If you find yourself crushed by your friendships, you don't need a new set of friends. You need a new definition of life. You know, if you find yourself in despair over broken relationships, listen, there is, a, there is such a thing as sadness and then there is despair. And if you find yourself in despair, you don't need new relationships. You need a new definition of life. If you find yourself riddled with guilt because you realize that you cannot live up to your moral standards, you don't need a new set of standards. You need a new definition of life. See, you want to know how to rejoice no matter what the circumstances are? You will have to define your life by Jesus. I'm a pretty simple guy, and I'm going to summarize what I think Paul is saying here in this passage. I think he's saying something like, just bring it on. Bring whatever it is. Because it's what I know and what I expect and what defines me that gives me my joy. And with that kind of foundation, I am secure, rain or shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. We do confess this morning that we so often try to define our, our lives by, by our circumstances. And we seek our contentment and our happiness and even our joy in what is happening above ground. But I pray this morning that you would allow your people to see the foundation that we have in Jesus. That you would remind us of the things that we know. That you would cause us to hope with absolute certainty that Jesus will glorify himself in us. And I pray for all of us this morning that you would allow us to arrive at your definition of life. That we would find ourselves resting in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So that no matter what happens, we have cause for great and exceeding joy in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.